Welcome. We are so glad you've joined us today. Are you ready for another Bayside Christian Church podcast? Let's get straight into it. How are you tonight? Are you happy? So good to see you. I'm so happy you've come. And I know that God meets the hungry ones, right? You're here tonight because you're hungry. And people who come on Sunday nights get a special blessing from the Lord. And I know tonight's going to be extra special. It's just so good to be here. And uh, please take your seats. But uh, before I share the word, you've uh, been blessed by not just myself, but my wife here tonight, uh, this weekend. And so once again tonight, just before I share the word, I'm going to invite Fiona to come up and uh, just to pray. And if anything else comes out of her mouth, she, she's got the freedom to do that as well. Uh, I just let her loose. So uh, over to you for a little bit. It's a bit scary. Ah, <laughs> oh, Lord. Father, we are just coming to you tonight, Lord, as your sons and daughters. And we are so hungry, God, for more of you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that as Carl preaches, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way in our hearts. I pray that every single person, God, would respond to what you are doing. Father, we do not submit or yield to any fear of man, but we only trust in you, God. And so I pray for complete freedom tonight as the word is preached. Lord, that we would engage, that we would receive. Father, we humble ourselves before your word and ask God, have your way. Set us on fire for your glory tonight, oh God. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. 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 Just before I share the word, if someone could do me a little favor, maybe switch that aircon off because uh, it's freezing the back of my head off and I don't want it to dry my throat out as I'm preaching. Uh, keep the other one on if you want. I'll just stay on this side tonight, but that'll be, that'll be helpful. Uh, I'm excited about what God has put on my heart to share. And as I said, I've been busting to preach this message for a long time. And uh, it's just sometimes you've got to wait for the right time. And uh, time has been ticking along. And uh, we are living in unprecedented days. You've probably heard that word thrown around a little bit because stuff is happening in the world that does not normally happen and has not normally happened. In fact... Uh, some would say, and I'd be one of them, to say that the world has pretty much gone mad. Is that right? And uh, the weather's gone mad and politicians have gone mad. And I'm not sure if it's the politicians affecting the weather or the weather affecting the politicians. I suppose it depends on which conspiracy theory you hold to. But one or the other, the place has gone mad. The financial system's gone crazy. The laws have gone nuts. And it's like, you know, madness is happening all around us, around the world. And there is many, many people saying, wow, there are so many biblical prophecies being fulfilled at a great rate of knots at the moment. At the same time, the church is waking up to, uh, to the Lord and reaching out to the Lord, as I was sharing about this morning. And there are many people who are saying, and some of these are significant voices that the return of the Lord is near. And I, I was talking this morning about the Pensacola revival, which I'll go into a little bit more tonight. But uh, the main pastor of the Pensacola church, the Brownsville Assembly of God Church, John Kilpatrick, who had prayed that revival into, into being, basically had led the church in prayer to see a great move of God. Incidentally, after that revival finished, he moved on to Tampa Bay and led that church into a revival. They saw the next outbreak of God. So you can see something about a, 
a, a, a leader who leads the church in prayer, seeking the heart of God, really leads into something happening. But even John Kilpatrick has been saying, I don't think we're going to see the decade out. And uh, that's kind of interesting when you hear great renowned preachers saying that sort of thing. And uh, when, I, when I came back from Pensacola back in 1997, I was on the plane and I was flying home. I wasn't an itinerant minister at the time. I was just, I was a youth pastor and not quite sure where I was going. In fact, I was in a transition after being a youth pastor. I'd been a campus pastor for a while and I wasn't sure where it was going. I'd pulled out of every area of ministry, uh, just waiting where are we going from here. And I'm on the plane coming back and I'm, I'm speaking to God. I'm having an encounter with God on the plane and I'm saying, God, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to prepare my bride for my coming. And I got to tell you, wow, did I get whacked out by the presence of God in that moment. I'm saying, God, I don't know. How am I going to do that? Who knows me? Who's going to have me speak, you know, uh, 700 churches later and, you know, 55 countries and all that sort of stuff. God has certainly opened up doors. But it's been interesting because we've been through an interesting 20 years, you know, a formative 20 years. It's the 20 years that have kind of been good and bad in different ways for the church and for the world. But we've just certainly come around in a bit of a circle and, and this revival that is beginning to burst and break out and bubble up in different places around the world. Many people are saying that this is the bridal revival. This is the revival that is preparing the bride for the return of the Lord, which is pretty exciting, right? And of course, you've got others that are hear me say things like that and hear these other people who are talking about, you know, the return of the Lord getting closer and, and they sort of, ah, pff, you know, it's like it's been the same old thing over the years. And in fact, if you go in the Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3, the whole chapter is pretty much devoted to that debate about, you know, the return of the Lord. When's it going to happen? It says that their mockers will come and people say, but you know, for, for years it's been the same old thing. And, and uh, but it just... I don't know about you, but it just keeps on getting, seems to be getting more and more, more and more, more and more. It's like, how long can this go on? You know what I'm saying? But I want to pick up 2 Peter chapter 3 from uh, verse 9. going to read through the verse 14. And it says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will, will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Sounds like a supernova coming from the sun if you ask me. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Wow. wow. Getting ready for the return of the Lord. 
The Pensacola Revival, I'll just give you a little bit of an outline again for those of you who weren't here this morning. In uh, 1995, John Kilpatrick invited uh, an evangelist by the name of Steve Hill to come and share. Steve had just been in, in England and been impacted at the Holy Trinity Brompton Church where God had been moving. And he came to the, uh, the Pensacola Church and just shared his experience on a Father's Day, Sunday morning, and just remembering the goodness of God, remembering aspects of the Father of God, Father God. And, uh, and then he just opened up the church to pray for people. As I shared this morning, it was kind of interesting because that was the beginning of the revival, but the beginning was not as overwhelming as you thought it might be. It wasn't like God just went boom and the whole church got wiped out. It was really the hungry ones who hung around and stayed and and, and God just began to move and it was like the move of the Spirit got greater and greater uh, over that over that day. And then as the revival went on, more and more the Spirit of God moved. And when I went to the Pensacola Revival, I actually went on the second anniversary. It was on a Father's Day week. And, and in fact, it happened to be the, the very week that Daniel Kalender was getting baptized and he was 16 years of age so I personally witnessed that which was pretty cool and um, and it was an amazing amazing experience because the church auditorium seated 2,500 people I got there at nine o'clock in the morning for the service that started at 6 30 p.m. because I wanted to line up and make sure I didn't make sure I got into the building but when they opened the doors at 6 p.m. and the people began to stream into the auditorium, by, before I even got to the door, the door closed. It was full already because people had arrived at 6 o'clock in the morning. There was thousands of people around the car park. They had this overflow chapel with 800 people. People were going into that overflow chapel. And, and uh, the first night, so I'm watching actually the, the, the revival on the main, on the, uh, what do you call the screen? It was like karaoke, you know. I, I didn't really, I couldn't get into it. And then John Kilpatrick got up and said, "Wherever you are from around the world, come on over to the main main auditorium." I thought, "You beauty, uh, come and come up and tell us where you're from." So I went over there, went up on the main stage, said, "I'm from Australia," and then went and sat in the auditorium. I didn't go back out. And uh, and then God just made a way for me every other night to get into the main auditorium, and I actually got into sort of the front section. And so I kind of experienced really the heart of this revival happening for the time that I was there, Tuesday night prayer meeting, Wednesday night through to Saturday night revival meetings and the Sunday morning church service. And it was phenomenal. Uh, and Lyndall Cooley leading worship was something else. I mean, when the worship got rocking, it was it was like your spirit kicked you on the inside and said, come on, move that body. If you don't if you don't move that body, I'm gonna jump out of you and just, just do it without you, you know? And, and, and so you had this incredible time worshiping God, this incredible liberty. <clears throat> and during the worship one night, it was just such a, a, a beautiful sense of the presence of God. And Lyndall Cooley led the congregation and he said, let's start crying out, come Lord Jesus. And it wasn't just like that, come to the service, Lord Jesus. It was literally, come Lord Jesus. Come back, Lord Jesus. Come back, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And the whole church just started chanting and crying out, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And my head was with it. My mouth was with it. And after a little while, my heart was going, I'm finding this a little bit hard to keep up with my head, with the words that are coming out of my mouth. And I was thinking, man, why is it that I'm struggling to actually literally 
cry out, come Lord Jesus. And then I was thinking about the church and I was thinking about a lot of Christians that I knew and I thought, wow, I don't think there's too many Christians that could be genuinely or wanting to cry out genuinely, come Lord Jesus. Look, we know He's coming one day, but many of us have lost our passion for the return of the Lord. It's interesting how things have happened. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, There is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on, on, on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Got to be honest, I wasn't longing for the appearing of the Lord. And I didn't know too many people who were longing for the return of the Lord. When was the last time you prayed in your prayer time, come back, Lord Jesus? I know COVID and all that sort of crazy stuff that's going around the world is probably provoking us to call Jesus back more than we would have other times. But what is it that's going on? Why are we struggling to say, come, Lord Jesus? I'm sure that there are some Christians that would be praying Jesus, don't come back yet, please. I got some things I want to do. You know, I want to get married. I, I want to do this. I want to do that. And, and please just hold off for a little bit longer. I'm doing this right now, and you, you're probably better if you didn't come back. So, what is wrong with the church? What is wrong with the bride of Christ if we're content to live down here on earth without Jesus Himself? Is it that we are too blessed? Is it, and we have been blessed. I mean, the last 20 years, prosperity. I mean, we live in nice homes. We live in, we drive nice cars. We eat good food. There's great coffee. Everything's pretty good going. You know what I mean? And sometimes we've just become very, very comfortable. Maybe we've become too content just to live here on the earth without the Lord. The question is, do we love the world more than we love Jesus? Or for some, maybe do they love sin more than they love Jesus? Oh, you know, it just could simply be that we've heard it all before. You know, same old, same old, as I was saying before. Little boy who cried wolf, you know, that scenario. Everyone's been saying that Jesus is coming back soon for a long time. I, I remember back in the 80s, Barry Smith. Anyone else remember Barry Smith? All the books and everything like that. You know, the return of the Lord and warning and second warning and final warning and I don't know what you call the post one, but, and then there was the Y2K scare and everything. We thought the end of the world was coming. And honestly, I don't know about you, but how many living back in the 80s and all that really thought the Lord was going to be back by now? Seriously, we did, didn't we? We really thought it would be over. And some of us are still surprised that we're here still in these days. But because we've just had to continue to occupy until he comes, as the Bible says, we've just we've kind of we've kind of put our expectation on the shelf a little bit, and we're not so urgently expecting the Lord to come. I've always had a passion for revival, as long as I can remember, at least. And uh, you know, I, I've read a lot of books on revival. You have a look at my bookshelf. There's a lot of revival books there. And when I went through Bible college, I had opportunity to go on and do more subjects. And the only subject that really interested me was revival. So I studied revival. And, uh, and I went to a lot of different revival meetings that were starting to break out in the mid-90s. And early to mid-90s, different places, they were experiencing revival. And so I just thought I'd go and soak up as much as I could. And, um, you know, 
once you've experienced revival, you are actually spoiled for anything less than that. It's true, eh? That's why you've got these people around when, when the church has become a little bit lukewarm. You've still got these people that are so hungry for, for revival that they, they're just not content in church the way that it is. And probably most of you who are here tonight are in that category. You just want more of God and uh, you want revival to break out again because we just want to experience the presence of God in a beautiful, beautiful way. And so, because I've been to so many different places, uh, you know, revival meetings and and revivalists and, and books and, and all that sort of thing. I've heard lots of different definitions of revival. I shared one with you this morning, which is quite a comprehensive revival. But I basically come up with my own definition of revival. And you could say it's just a little sum, summation uh, definition of revival, which is just simply Jesus coming to church. That's it. When Jesus turns up, uh, it, it's all on, you know, because a lot of people do church without Jesus. In fact, a lot of churches have become very good at doing church without Jesus, without the presence of God. And, and it's not something I'm, I'm real good on. Uh, I, I just don't enjoy that. But you know, so when Jesus comes to church, and he comes to church big time, because as I said this morning, it doesn't just impact the church. It then goes on to impact the whole town. God moves in such a powerful way. And I'm excited that Revival, it's interesting because I'm a revivalist, right? And uh, after the, the move of God in the late 90s and sort of sort of came into 2000 and things kind of become a little bit unpopular, the word revival almost was a dirty word for a season there and uh, people just weren't hungry for revival. But it's so exciting that we've come around full circle over a 20-year period and there's a hunger for revival again. And, and uh, you know, God is beginning to move. He's big, as I was sharing this morning, there's little pockets of, of revival fire breaking out in Australia and in other places around the world. And I know it's just the beginning. It's just a foretaste for what is about to happen. And, uh, you know, if we should believe anything that Smith Wigglesworth would say when he prophesied the latest, last great move of the Holy Spirit, which would start in Australia and then impact the nations of the world. And it was going to be a move of the gifts of the Spirit and, and you know, miracles happening, hospitals being emptied out, so many people getting saved, you can't even count how many are, hap are getting saved. And, and, and he said it was going to begin toward the end of the 20th century and then go into the 21st century. And I believe we actually got an appetizer back in the 90s. It was just like God giving us a taste of what is to come. But, you know, we are now, I believe, moving in to what is going to be such a full-blown revival like the world has never seen and preparing the bride for the return of the Lord. And I've come up with a little theory, actually, myself. I cannot imagine Jesus coming back to a church that is not in revival. And there's two reasons for that. And the first is that mercy always precedes judgment. Mercy always comes before judgment and Jesus is coming back to judge. And so he is bringing this great wave of mercy, a great, a great uh, as I was sharing this morning, his kindness leading us to repentance. There's coming a revival wave across the church and there's coming a great harvest of souls around the world. He is not willing that any should perish. So he has given us time and he is moving by his spirit in order to prepare the church and to bring as many people into the kingdom before he comes back. And so mercy always comes before judgment. And the second thing is, revival gives us a taste of eternity. Amen. You know, some churches reject God's manifest presence. 
I, I can't get my head around that. But if they expect themselves to become the bride of Christ, then it would be like they're going to marry a stranger because they don't know what his presence is really like. They've just got theory and, and, and you know, what they've read, but they've not really experienced, had encounters with the Lord. But it's like revival is God courting the church. He's coming to give us that taste of relationship with Him. It's a taste of heaven. And it's amazing what that taste of heaven can be like, right? And for those of you who have experienced revival, it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's wonderful. Extraordinary things happen. In fact, I was watching a little video clip yesterday which made me laugh, and it was some guy who'd been baptized in lemon juice who was talking about all the funny moments of revival, right? And he was critical, of course. He was talking like it was all from hell and all from, from the devil and everything, and he's watching all these people laughing and watching all these people having these wonderful experiences with God, and then kind of switch back to him from time to time. It's like, how terrible is this? I mean, it's, it's just so bad. These people are happy, you know. It's like <laughs> crazy stuff, eh? When Jesus comes to church, the church comes alive. When Jesus comes to church, stuff happens. People get healed. People get saved. People get delivered. People get smashed. Right? People come to church early and people leave church late because they want to experience the wonderful presence of God. And uh, he comes to churches and he touches people who are hungry for him, who are desperate for him, open to him, to allow him to have his way, not to control him when he comes, but say, Lord Jesus, come, be my guest. Have your way amongst us. Move in power amongst us. Are you hungry for Jesus tonight? Do you want Jesus to come? Could we cry out, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, when Jesus comes to church, it's just so awesome. You encounter His presence. I love the presence of God. I love encountering the presence of God. This morning in church, there were those that encountered the presence of God. And, and as I shared uh, and tried to share before, too many people left this morning. Don't leave. Because if you're going to remain, you're more likely to experience an encounter with God. And, and even during the time praying for people, I just sense it starting to get stronger and stronger. And it is as we are waiting on the Lord. See, we want a quick fix. We want an easy, just go and go and get your little click the switch and get your little blessing and then go home and have your lunch. You know, it's, we, we just don't have that wait upon the Lord thing anymore. It's, but when we do, we wait upon the Lord, we encounter God. And when we encounter God, man, things happen. Miracles happen. And uh, awesome stuff happens. Amen. In fact, I want to have a look at Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah had a little bit of an encounter with God as you do when you're in heaven. <laughs> when you go to heaven, and you know, whether it was a, probably a vision, I would say, or a translation, I'm not quite sure, but it was pretty full on ski. And uh, so let's have a look at this. And I want to just have a look at two key things that happen when we have an encounter with God, because I've got a feeling it might happen here tonight. And, uh, you know, it, it, it changes us. It changes us. Would you like to have an encounter with God tonight? Give me a wave. Are you ready to be changed? Are you ready to be changed? Because when you come out the other side of an encounter with God, you're a different person. 
things happen, right? So here's Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. They had two wings. With, with two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now that probably actually means holy really loud because that's how they used to write things back then. They put it, instead of underline and bold, they just do it more times, okay? So holy, holy, holy basically just means like going, Holy! Like, wah! Blown away by how holy God is, right? Something like that. Um, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his, uh, of His glory. It's full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Come on. That's pretty awesome. And then Isaiah speaks up. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Before I go on any further, I just want to say this, and it just kind of depends on how much spontaneity we have in the meeting later on and all that sort of stuff. But just kind of feel free throughout this meeting, if God starts speaking to you, begin responding to God. Right, the altar's open right from the beginning. If if God's speaking to your heart, you know, maybe even if if you feel like uh, jumping on the guitar at some stage, just feel led by the Spirit. I'm not saying you have to do that, but just feel led by the Holy Spirit. Um, let's just keep this open and free, and the altar is open, um, so you can come at any time. But the first thing that happens when we have an encounter with God is that God puts His finger on our sin. With revival comes a heavy, heavy conviction of sin. And I touched on this again this morning, but in the Pensacola revival, when it came to altar ministry time, it's hard to describe the, the atmosphere in the place other than to say it was overwhelming, overwhelming. You wanted to cry. You wanted to repent even if there was nothing wrong with you. It's like you're in the building there and you, it's, it's, like, it's like the spotlight's on you. And suddenly you, you're convicted for scratching your head. You know, it's a, you, you, suddenly you realize this jacket that you've been wearing your whole life and you think it's pretty cool and you're okay with it, suddenly you get a revelation, it's covered in sewage. That's what it's like. Things that you held dear, things that you thought were okay, things that, that you just accommodated in your life, suddenly it makes you sick. Suddenly it, it's repulsive to you. Suddenly you just want to rip it off you and throw it as far away from you as you can. You want to separate yourself from anything that separates you from the presence of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27 says, He is returning for a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's to say, He is not coming back for a church that is full of sin. 
He's not coming back for a church that is full of compromise. If you do have any in your life, now's a good time to get rid of it. I want to just share with you a few hard scriptures from the Bible. Is that okay? Can you handle the Word of God? Okay, I'm going to share a few hard scriptures, but I'm also then going to share a few encouraging scriptures, all right? Because this is not about putting a big heavy on you. It's just telling you the truth today. But in John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, the Bible says this, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. Can you say amen to that? But it goes on to say, and in him is no sin. And no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. What is this saying? If you call yourself a Christian and you keep on willingly or willfully sinning, you don't really know Jesus. That is pretty heavy duty right there, isn't it? But you might say, but I know Jesus and I struggle with sin. Didn't the Apostle Paul talk about his struggle with sin in Romans chapter 7? You know, he's talking about this part of me, the sin nature and all the blah, blah going on. And, and, you know, praise be to God sort of thing. Thank you for Jesus and and all that sort of stuff. And then it goes on into chapter 8 of of, uh, Romans after him speaking about the struggle. And in 8 verse 1, he says, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we all went, yay, right? But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, there's a choice of how we live our lives. And then it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Even though there is a struggle, there is freedom within that struggle. See, when you're in Christ and when Christ is in you, you are given a new nature. You become a new person. And you have a choice then which nature you're going to live out of whether you're going to live out of the old nature or you're going to live out of the new nature, whether you're going to live out of the sin nature or you're going to live out of the spirit nature, the choice is ours and we have been given this new nature which literally has the power to overcome sin, to to overcome temptation. See, Jesus came, yes, to blot out our sin, to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us of our sin, but to give us power so that we no longer sin. That's part of the deal. But we've got a choice. Do we want to keep on sinning or do we want to walk in the Spirit? Do we want to walk in the new nature? See, because when you've got a new nature, you want to please God, not please yourself. The sin nature wants to please man and wants to please ourselves. But the Spirit nature wants to please God and you want to live to please Him. But for many of us, that struggle is very real. And I know there's times where we do fall, right? And, and, and we're not immediately zapped with a bolt of lightning from heaven. Praise God. For some, maybe it would be helpful if we got saved and translated straight away, but no, no, God's got to work. He's doing a work. He's doing a work of sanctification. He's working in us. He's maturing us. He's growing us. He's shaping us. He's molding us into the image of Jesus. And as I was talking about this morning, it's the the process of repentance. See, repentance isn't just a once-off thing. It's a remaining in alignment with God. And repentance is all about a change of heart first. 
Because when your heart's changed, everything else changes. See, you can, you can come and go through all the act of Christianity without a heart change, and you will be resisting the work of the Spirit of God all the time. But if your heart is to please God and your heart is to do the will of God, then you are given the mind of Christ. You, you have a new way of thinking and your thinking is, how can I live to please God? And when you live, how can I live to please God rather than how can I live to please myself? Then you start living your life going in a different direction. See, you've turned around. Repentance, it's a turn around, not just feeling bad. It's turning around and saying, I'm going to start walking in this direction. Now, you might trip from time to time, but you keep going in this direction. That's how it is. You keep your heart toward the Lord and wanting to live to please God. Amen. You know, some people may be surprised at how the Lord responds to their continued unconfessed sin. And some who we think are good people, Sunday school teachers and musicians and even ministers. I mean, God, you've probably noticed around the world there's been some great men of God in recent times. Or we thought they were great men of God. Big shots in Christian circles who have fallen from grace massively. And, And, you know, the reality is they have been in sin all of that time. And we think, you know, it's the judgment of God coming on them. And you talk about judgment coming on the house of God first and all that. That ain't the judgment of God. If someone has their sin exposed in this life, that's the grace of God. He exposes our sin. He shines a light on our sin so we get the junk out of our lives. Here's another hard scripture. You want another hard one? Is that all right? Only a few said, okay, you all right? Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we not prophesied in your name? Haven't we cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Whoa, they must be pretty full on Christians, right? They're prophesying, casting out demons and doing wonders. Some translations say they're healing the sick. They're doing pretty cool, awesome Christian stuff. But then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practiced lawlessness. That's heavy. How much sin do we have to have in our lives to stand before God on judgment day and have him to say to us, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness? Who wants to find out? Who wants to just keep a little bit of sin tucked away on the side there? Get there just in case, you know, just kind of find out where the actual line's drawn on that one. Of course not, but the reality is there are many Christians who do live like that. They've got a little bit of sin tucked away, just thinking it's okay, kind of living lives on the edge of a cliff. How, how, what am I trying to say? It's like, how close to the world can I live without falling? In, instead of how close to Jesus can I, how far away from the world can I live my life? You know, separate yourself under God. That's what mean be holy means to be separate. It doesn't mean to be close to the world. It means to be close to God and be like God. You know, and uh, but you know when we measure our standard of righteousness by the world standard, what have we? What's happened to the world standard? 
It's gone completely off the edge, hasn't it? I mean, it was it was okay 50 years ago. I'm mean, not saying it was perfect, but but you know, it's kind of got worse and worse and worse and worse. And then in the last couple of years, it's just flipped off the edge. It's like completely gone nuts. And what is evil is now called good. And what is good is now called evil. And if you were in some way trying to measure your standard of righteousness from that, boom, completely out of whack. And the other thing that's happened, you know, over the last 20 years or so, the world's prospered, especially the Western world, has really, really, really prospered. And, and uh Life's become comfortable. We've become complacent. Easy come, easy go. A little bit of like, um, what's it? Uh, what, am I, what am I thinking? Like when you come to smorgasbord Christianity. What, what's the word I want to use? It's, it's, it's kind of like easy come, easy go. Uh, yeah, take away. It's, you know, we've allowed compromise to creep into the church. It's kind of like, well, the Lord's not going to come back. You know, we thought the Lord's coming back. We've got plenty of time now. It's all right. It's just a bit of this and a bit of that. And, and because also because of this threat, political correctness, and all this other nonsense going on, the church has been afraid to actually preach truth. They've, they, they've been afraid to say it the way that it is. That's why I was saying this morning, revival preaching is saying it the way that it is. It's not pampering the lambs. It's, it's speaking hardcore, convicting truth. And, uh, but it hasn't been preached in a lot of Christian circles. And because of that, a lot of Christians, particularly young Christians, unfortunately, are getting most of their influence from the world rather than from the church. They get half an hour of watered down gospel in the church. And then throughout the week, they've got hours hours and hours of university or hours and hours of television or movies or whatever it is that is preaching to them what is normal and what is okay. So sin has become normal in the church. And that's not okay. And it's shocking the statistics, not just in the world, but the statistics in the church. Pornography in the church. It's shocking how many people, even pastors and ministers and leaders, are struggling with pornography. Fornication in the church is unbelievably rampant in these days. And for people who are not doing it, there's people that want to do it. And they're kind of like, what the heck? If you know what I'm saying. It's because of what's going in there, what's being fed into their minds. Back in the day, we used to preach in a nice shirt and a tie and jacket. And occasionally we do that on a special occasion, but not very much for me now. I try to avoid it as much as possible. But uh, <laughs> even in Africa, I've got a choice of wearing a suit and tie or a nice colored African shirt. So I'm always in the African shirt. That's me. But uh, back in the day, I had this favorite tie. It was an awesome tie. It was kind of a mix of colors. It, it, was, it was white and red and brown and green and black and kind of blotches and stuff going on. You know, it looked like ink blotches and everything. And it was such a cool tie. I mean, everybody who saw it uh, told me how much they loved this tie, and I, I really loved it. And the cool thing about this tie, I could spill my dinner on it, and you wouldn't know, you know. <laughs> if I got stuck and I needed to, to wipe the dipstick of my car on it, I could do that, and nobody would know, you know. I could blow my nose on it, and... Uh, I might have done that a couple of times. No, I didn't really. But, you know, I could, you could do all this sort of stuff with this tie. It's a pretty, pretty awesome tie. 
But you know how many people have experienced you put on a white shirt or you put on a white blouse and, and you go out for dinner. What's going to happen? Tomato sauce, right? It's going to land where? Right smack in the middle of the front of your shirt, isn't it? It's going to, a big blob. It's all, it's attracted. It's like, it's like magnet. It's, it's there. And you're going to try and get this blotch of tomato sauce out of your shirt and you go off to the bathroom and you put water on there and you go, and well, it just makes it worse. And you end up with this big pink patch or this orange patch or whatever on your shirt. What do you have to do with that shirt? You've got to give it to mum, right? Because mums have these special anointings to remove patches from shirts that, that we don't have or, you know what I'm saying. But, uh, you know, there's, there's some Christians, they live their lives like my tie. They kind of got stuff going on in their lives, and, but it's just kind of them. It's, it's their, their thing. It's their way. It's their personality or their, their clique or whatever it is, their, the mob they hang out with. And, and, you know, I just kind of think God's all right with that. He's all right with that's my weakness. He understands and that sort of thing. But really, we should all be living our lives like a white shirt like a white blouse, like the very moment that we get that spot on it, it should horrify us like tomato sauce. And we should be compelled not to give it to our mum, but give it, give it to our dad, right? To give it to our heavenly dad. Just That's what we can do with our sin. We quickly come and give it to our heavenly dad and allow him to deal with it. What did Isaiah do? He confessed. We confess our sin. When we confess our sin, that's when God can deal with our sin. It says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So he was, through confession, cleansed. He talked a bit funny after that, because you know, he's got, his lips are all fattened. Burned and, but at least he was cleansed. Amen. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we're not hopelessly stuck in our sin. We just got to respond. Every time conviction comes upon us, we respond through confession. And when we do that, he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And he's better than Omo. Amen. He's better than radiant. He will make you whiter than snow. Aren't you glad? You know, we can't make ourselves right with God. We can't. We can just surrender ourselves to God. And He makes us right and He keeps us right. Do you want a couple of encouraging scriptures? Because it says in Jude 24, Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling away and bring you uh, and, and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. Wow, isn't that cool? So we can actually anticipate when Jesus comes back being free from sin. That's exciting, isn't it? Some of you are going, I don't believe it. <laughs> it's true. I'll give you another scripture. This is 1 Thessalonians 3.13. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when the Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. 
Wow. So he puts his finger on our sin, not to condemn us, to convict us that we might confess so that we might be cleansed and made right with him. Amen. You know, because the reality is sin becomes a, ch- a ball and chain around many people's legs. And it stops people fulfilling God's plan and purpose for their lives. People keep tripping over and tripping over and tripping over and tripping over. But if we just give it all to God, let Him cleanse us, we can rock it off and, and do some great things for the Lord with our lives. The next thing is, and it's found in Isaiah 6 verse 8, I also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. So an encounter with God is not only going to bring conviction, bring you into a place where God is going to deal with the sin that's in your life, but an encounter with God is going to bring you into a place where He is going to compel you to go. He will compel you to go. You know, there's a lot of people who want to have an encounter with God. There's a lot of people who want to hear hear the voice of God. Who would like to hear the voice of God? There's a lot of people who want to hear the voice of God, but they just don't even obey what He's told them in the first place. The last thing Jesus said before He left, what did He say? Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Go and preach the gospel. That's the word of the Lord. And, 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 you know, go doesn't necessarily mean to another country, even though all the world, this is all part of all the world, but it does mean go and preach the gospel. He then said, go and make disciples of all nations. He said, go into the highways and to the byways and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. As I said this morning, I love going into church prayer meetings before the service. And sometimes it astounds me when I hear people praying, Lord, send them in, send them in. And I think to myself, don't you read your Bible? He said, go out and compel them to come in. People come to church when people invite them to come to church. That's primarily, I mean, there will be the odd ones that have moved from place to place or the, you know, looking for a church or whatever. And you'll get some people walk in occasionally, but 85% of people who come to church come to church because someone's invited them to church. And when you're compelled to get out there and start inviting people, you can invite them and they will come. Friends, family, foe, they will all come to Jesus when we do that. So God is so committed to us going that he made the word go two-thirds of his own name. So you'd never forget it. He made it one-third of the gospel. So you'd never forget it. It's all about going out there and taking God to a dying world around about us. You know, if you get close to someone, you're going to catch their heartbeat. And if you get close to Jesus, you're going to catch his heartbeat. And you will discover very quickly that his heart beats for the lost. It's the lifeblood. It's the heartbeat of God. It's the lifeblood of the church to win the lost, to see Lost souls come into the kingdom. Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. And it's his will that none should perish. Jesus coming to the earth was all about people coming into relationship with God. And when you connect with Jesus, when you have an encounter with Jesus, he's going to enlist you into that very, very task of seeing the world come into relationship with God. And so whenever revival breaks out, whenever God's moving, whenever people are encountering God in an special way, with that revival, there always comes a great thrusting out. There always comes a great thrusting out. There always comes a, a great um, 
thrust of evangelism and a great thrust of missions. That's when you trace through the history of revival. They always end up in that way, getting out to reach the lost, getting out to reach the world and see a great harvest of souls. And it's exciting days because, man, is there a harvest of souls coming in. You know, I shared with you this morning, just in the last three years, um, not even that, since 2021 June, we've seen 355,000 people come into the kingdom of God. And that's just a little blip on what God is doing. And, you know, all of the graduates out of CFAN and that are, that are doing stuff and what CFAN's doing in the last three years, there's been like eight million souls. Um, but there's other movements, there's other mobs around that are really going for it, going for souls at the moment. And I don't know if you've heard about the billion soul harvest prophecy it is very doable, particularly at the rate that evangelists are getting trained. You know, there's fire camps. We've got a fire camp coming up in, in uh, end of November, beginning of December. If you're interested in being trained, a CFAN fire camp is going to be on the, on the Gold Coast. And uh, I'll be involved in training there as well. And so we're just helping people get the fire of God in them, get out there and win the lost. And there's a great big harvest coming in. It's the end time harvest. This is the harvest that, that the Lord is talking about. Amen. Now, the same two things that Jesus deals with when he comes to church, listen to this, will hasten his return. The same two things, these things that I'm talking about right now, these two things will hasten the return of the Lord, will, will cause the Lord to come back sooner. We're, we're waiting for the Lord to come back. Have you ever thought that the Lord is actually waiting for you? See, because when Christians get serious about sharing their faith so that their friends and family and foes come to Jesus, then Matthew chapter 24, verse 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end shall come. So he's not coming back until we've done our job, until we've taken the gospel and shared it out around the world. And uh, you might say, but I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a missionary. You don't need to be. You just need to be obedient. That's it. You are a Christian. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. What has God given you the Holy Spirit for? Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So that's why you have the Holy Ghost, so that you can share your faith with other people. There's a dying, messed up, mad world around us that needs the church to rise up and boldly proclaim the good news to those around about us. Amen. And as we do that, we are hastening the return of the Lord. And also, as I said, when Christians get serious about getting sin out of their lives, um, that's going to also hasten the return of the Lord. As I shared earlier from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 to 12 says, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So while you're waiting for Him, He's waiting for you. How's that? You know, maybe the musos could come or whatever we're going to do um, would be great, Aaron, or somebody. I was asking the Lord to show me His heart for the church. And uh, this is a few years ago, right? And I was asking the Lord when I was single. And so it shocked me a little bit more back then. But I was reading in Deuteronomy chapter 28. 
And there it's talking about the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. Really interesting stuff to read, right? And when I got to verse 30, it was like, oh, man, that's, that's a bit full on, you know. And it says there, you will be pledged to be married to a woman, but another will take her and rape her. I mean, that just makes your blood go, doesn't it? It's like, what a sick thing to be put in the Bible. But, but what a, how, this is the heart of God. I'm like, God, is this, is this what you feel? And I was reminded of the movie Braveheart. Remember in the movie Braveheart, you see, you see the Prima Nocta. Prima Nocta was, was our evil law that the English lords came up with back in the day. This is back, uh, I'm not sure, was it the 12th century or some, somewhere back then, right? When, when they came up with this evil law that England was oppressing and ruling over Scotland, but Scotland was, you know, kind of trying to break free a little bit. So they came up with this law to continue to oppress the Scots and control the Scots. They thought they would dilute their race. So the English lords, this, is, this was a law they came up with called the Law of Prima Nocta, which gave English lords fertility rights over Scottish brides. So when a Scottish couple got married, literally the English lords would come and bust up the marriage, bust up the wedding ceremony, and take the bride away, and an English lord would sleep with that Scottish bride before she slept with her husband, so that the first child would be English instead of Scottish. Evil way. And, and you can imagine this, and you see it in the movie, if you remember the movie Braveheart, if you don't, have a look at it again, because it's very compelling. Because in the movie, one of, one of William Wallace's mates is having a wedding with his wife, and the Scottish lord turns up. I mean, the English lord turns up takes his bride off and you can see the anger in the sky you know and he carried that right until the day that he got his revenge and smashed his head in with a steel ball you know but as you can imagine <laughs> unredeemed but you know what I'm saying it, it just puts something in them and William Wallace trying to trying to um, avoid this happening to his wedding married his bride in secret only to to one day have an English lord turn up thinking she was still single and he was a creep and uh, he, he tried to rape William Wallace's wife and she resisted and so she was taken and tied to a tied to a pole and they knew that he was keen on her or they, I don't know if they actually knew he was married to her at the time but they took her and tied her to a pole and slit her throat publicly and, and this this stirred William Wallace. This, this compelled William Wallace. He, he, he was like a, a passive resistor to begin with. But it, it compelled him with a, with a fire and a passion to lead the Scotch people in, in a fight for freedom against the English. And you know the whole story if you don't watch it again because it's fantastic. Just, just how he was driven by this and fueled by this, this anger in his heart, this this being so disturbed about what he was seeing happening to his people. So I'm like, God, is, is this how you feel when your bride is enticed away by sin? And I thought, well, actually, as I meditated on it a bit, bit longer, it, God's pain is even worse than that. I want you to imagine a, a, young, mar- a young man and a, a young woman who fall in love and they plan to get married. 
He's come from another country. They, they, they get engaged. And then he goes back to his country to build a home. And he's working and he's building the home and preparing the home. And there's delays. It's taking longer than he thought. He's sending love letters back to his wife. It's taking longer than he thought. And his wife, in a moment of weakness, somebody comes on the scene and she, she falls, has an affair and gets the guilt. And, uh, and then suddenly her heart changes. Even though he is still writing love letters, even though he is still yearning for his his bride and doing everything he can to try to compel his bride she's hardened her heart and she's backed off from that relationship thought, God is this how you feel you're wanting to come back for your bride you're wanting your bride to be ready you're longing for her to be ready when's the bride going to be ready well this good news Revelation chapter 19 verse 6 to 8 says this Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting. This must have been a pretty good celebration going on right there. Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Hallelujah. (laughs) The day is coming and the day is coming soon when the bride is going to be ready for the return of the Lord. If you are yearning for His return, there's something that you can do and that is to get yourself ready for Him to come back. Let's stand up to our feet. Thank you for joining us. The Bayside Christian Church community aims to transform our city and beyond with the life and power of Jesus Christ. If you want to know more or just keep in touch, check us out at www.baysidechristianchurch.com.au or follow us on our social media sites at Bayside Christian Church.